As a PGA professional, I often find myself in situations where I feel run down, fatigued, and dehydrated. Whether it's a long day at work giving lessons or playing in an event myself, I know DF18 by DriveForce can help me get through. DF18 is a pre-round supplement that's added to water. Drink it on your way to the golf course or midday at work to get through that afternoon slump. Everything else is just for hydration, but DF18 helps with focus and stamina and boosts your overall health. Whether you're a golf professional, PGA or LPGA tour player, or an amateur golfer, DF18 can help you feel better and play better. Go to driveforce.golf and use my code BIRDIE15 to get 15% off your order. everyone. Welcome to the Birdie Bitch Podcast. My name is Maddie Belden and I'll be your host. Today I interviewed my dad, Alan Belden. He is a PJ member, has been for over 20 years. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, I give you a rundown of all of the things or some of the things that he's done in his long career. We discuss a few different topics ranging from his path to PJ membership, PJ education, uh, the masters and females in the industry. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Maddie Belden Golf and at Birdie Bitch Pod, and you can follow him on Instagram at Belden Golf. So, without further ado, here's the interview. All right, so we are here with my dad, my first interview guest, Alan Belden, PGA. He is the currently the director of instruction at Salem Country Club and the Director of Business Development at the Golf Live app. He's also the Honorary President of the New England PGA, uh, was the president from 2019 to 2021, right? Correct. Was a Vice President and the Secretary before that. He was the Head Golf Professional at Worcester Country Club for 20 years. He's won Golf Professional of the Year, and or New England PGA Golf Professional of the Year, and any PGA merchandiser of the year. So you've done a lot. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else to add? <laughs> anything else no. that you do? No, I, yeah, I know I've been at it for a long time and, um, just been very fortunate to, um, work with, um, some very good people and I've had, um, um, always had good support staff and some very good assistance and, um, um, you know, and have worked um, at very good clubs, and it's just been—I've been lucky. I've been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. So, so to get started, I want to know. I kind of have a general idea, but how did you get involved in golf, both playing and working? Because I know you—you you didn't play golf in high school or college. You actually played tennis in college. So, how did you pick up actually playing the sport? Yeah, so I mean, I, hockey was my primary sport growing up, um, and I played hockey and tennis competitively amongst a lot of other um, sports. Um, and um, you know, I think that it's one of the things that we have learned um, in working with junior golfers is that you know, creating athletes first and then allowing them to specialize in something later um, is a is the right way to go most of the time. Um, um, and like everybody else, I, after I got out of school, I was introduced to the game of golf by a friend of mine, um, you know, who played um, um, growing up and uh, took me to the golf course and, um, and started, uh, once I started playing, I just, I couldn't get enough to hook one in 
very, very deep. Um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a coach who um, taught me how to play the game before I had developed any bad habits. And within a short period of time, I was playing golf competitively. So competitively, you mean on like the state level or? Yeah, obviously starting um, at the state level, um, you know, playing in amateur events. I mean, growing up in Rhode Island, you know, playing in um, you know, the Rhode Island Golf Association, um, you know, had amateur events, had the Rhode Island Amateur, um, played in the Rhode Island Open. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, probably the first few events I played and I had no business playing in it, but I did it. Um, and expose myself to the competition, which, you know, in hindsight was was a good thing. And then how long after you started playing golf did you start working in golf? Um, it wasn't that long. I mean, I played, you know, I played, um, like I said, I played some in some amateur events. There was a, uh, a mini tour called the North Atlantic Tour, um, which um, the legendary Buddy Young started that went through the Northeast. Um, I played in some North Atlantic Tour events, um, um, and, uh, competed in those. And, you know, it was <clears throat> after playing for a few years and getting my game to a certain level where I felt like, you know, I was okay. Um, but I certainly realized, um, pretty quickly that not having, um, been exposed to golf at a young age, that making a living playing golf was something that was, that was completely different. Um, and I, but I knew that I, I loved the game and I wanted to be involved. So I decided, um, to pursue a career in golf, um, and started talking to some people about, you know, the potential of working in, at the club level and sent my resume into the New England PGA office, um, back in the mid nineties, back when things were on paper, put an envelope and put a stamp (laughs) on it. So... So when you uh, first applied to work in the golf business, did you did they require you to have any credentials other than playing a bit? Did you have to take your PAT first, or did they just let you come on in? No, I was I was hired. So Ray LaJoy was the one that hired me at Worcester Country Club, um, and again, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time where they had an opening because I applied rather late in the hiring season for New England. Um, you know, I, at that time had been playing golf for, for a few years and had some experience playing, but I knew nothing about the golf industry. Um, but I interviewed for the job, um, and, you know, through the interview process was selected to be an assistant and that was how it started. Um, I didn't need to have any experience, um, before I began, but as soon as I got the job and got into it, and then I quickly learned about the PGA education um, the path to becoming a class A and, um, um, and pretty quickly enrolled in the program. And back then, before you could proceed and do anything, you did have to pass your PAT. Um, I think now you can, you know, do your orientation, start, start your work, and you have so much time to pass. But back then, in the, um, in the 90s, um, we were not allowed to even register for our orientation and begin our book work until we pass the PAT. Gotcha. And it took you three tries to pass? Where did you pass? Passed at Ponkapog. <laughs> and uh, had never played there before. Um, shot a pretty high number in the first 18, and then went out in the second 18, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was it was something around even par in the second Second eighteen might have even been subpar, but I did make a hole in one, which certainly contributed to the uh, to the number and. Um, and mom was on your bag. Right? And yes, <laughs> uh, my wife Carrie was on the bag, 
um, that day for the 36 holes and, um, and passed at Ponkapog. Yep. So moving into PJ education, you kind of already touched on it. Um, you had to take your PAT before, which I, I, I believe I actually took my PAT before even enrolling, but it wasn't required to do. Um, is there anything else that's different between the path that you took versus I did now? When did you start? Probably in sometime in the late 90s, 97? would have been 97, I believe. I had to go to Buffalo for my orientation. Um, I think that, you know, the biggest difference, obviously, than what I saw, because you did it during COVID, right? So yeah. um, yours was in a virtual platform online. Um, I actually had to travel. There was no, there was no um, PGA education center like there is now in Port St. Lucie. Um, basically, the PGA set up <clears throat> um, in a hotel um, in different regions around the country to t- try to accommodate the different members in the different areas um, and would run the, um, the education programs for the week. I mean, usually we would arrive on Sunday and then depart on Friday. The first half you were being tested on whatever the existing level that you were in, assuming that you passed, which was usually on Tuesday, then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, those last three days were spent uh, reviewing and going through the the um, the level that you would be entering, and then we would go home, work on the do the book work, submit the book work. Once it was approved, then you could register for the next level, and then you would travel, test, and start the process over again. So that was there was four four different. Um, I had to go to Air, Buffalo, Nashville, Columbus, and then finished in Portland, Oregon. So that's you know probably one of the biggest differences now. Everything is in Florida. Um, or in your case during COVID was online. It's so, in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that was, we, we did have to travel. Um, and the travel, you know, because we were in, you know, major cities, you know, at bigger hotels, um, it was, there was some cost, um, it, it could be costly. There was some, it was prohibitive to some people because of the, because of the travel, um, you know, moving it to Florida and having it in one location where the PGA has control over the expenses. It's, I think a little bit more reasonable now. Yeah, and I think that's kind of why I wanted to finish it so quickly online because I think it was about seven hundred dollars for the seminar online, and it was going to be probably closer to fifteen hundred or two grand with would, flights yeah. and hotels and yeah, everything. I so say, I was going to say it's probably a couple thousand bucks to travel, right? Yeah. So. Um, and then the other difference too is I would do the seminar Monday through Friday online, and then I would schedule my exam whenever I wanted. I mean, level three, I I submitted my portfolio and I took the test 24 hours later after it was approved. So it was a lot easier to move through it a lot quicker. Yeah, that, that wasn't possible, obviously, when we did it. And you had to submit your book work for approval before you could register for the next um, uh, seminar. So, it, you know, if, depending on where it was the time of year, um, sometimes those seminars would be full, which which might push you back you know, two or three months before you could get into one. So, yeah. um, you know, you had to be, you had to really be proactive in registering for the events to make sure that, um, that you would get in. Yeah. I'm, I'll be interested to see, do you know if they're moving education to, uh, not Waco. To Frisco. Frisco. Um, I believe they are. It would make sense to me. Honestly, I probably should know the answer to that question, but I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I know parts of the, of the national operation are going to remain, in Florida, like I think tournament operations um, and championships are going to stay in um, in Palm Beach. Um, 
but uh, obviously the majority of the operation is going to go to Frisco, and it would make sense to me that the education would go there because it's more centrally lo uh, centrally located yeah. for those uh, members that are on the West Coast. I know most of my teachers the last level had moved to Frisco, so I would assume they are. Yeah. And then in terms of like the actual education, like the con all the content in the different levels, um, I know it hasn't really changed that much because you still have your binders from the late 90s and I was looking through them and some of the questions are literally the exact same 20 plus years later. Do you think that's an issue or do you think it's okay because it's kind of the same themes? Well, I think some of, obviously some of the educational stuff is, is you know, is going to remain pretty much the same, right? I mean, the basis of a lot of what you're going to do in the golf business, golf operations, um, is not going to change. Um, do I think that it would help if some of the content was freshened up? Of course. Um, I do think that we as an association could do a better job with that. I also think that, you know, that teaching and coaching is probably one of the most important things that we do as an association um, to influence um, the, um, the members and customers that we're dealing with on a daily basis. Um, if people are playing better golf, they want to play more golf. And I think that is one of the most important things that we do. And um, I don't think that we do a great job of preparing our apprentices to, um, to teach. I think yeah. we could do better. Um, and I think that I have been fortunate enough to, be, to have been mentored um, by some really good coaches and have had access to instruction from some really good coaches and that is um, that is how I've learned but you know leaving leaving your last class and going out as a class A and saying that you're ready to teach at that point um, you know I think that that's that might be might be stretching it a bit because um, you know what what your what your eye sees and I mean it really comes with experience your eye over time becomes so much more adept at seeing things right away that it's just it you have to put in the time and put in the hours um, and observe swings and be a student of the game in order to be to get to a level where you're going to be able to effectively help people play better golf yeah I think you I think you were the one that told me this like the first year of lessons that I gave at least I should probably give refunds to the people because they they didn't <laughs> get what they paid for probably yeah I you know I mean I can remember the first couple lessons that I gave and I think you know <clears throat> did I help those people um I hope so did I help them to the level that I could help somebody today absolutely not and I think a lot of it is I mean look the first couple lessons that you give I remember being nervous right I mean yeah. you're scared to death um you don't want to say the wrong thing and it's almost like do no harm instead of having the foresight to be able to see what is exactly wrong within their swing, um, and that just comes with experience. So I think you have to spend the time working with somebody who has a trained eye in order to get that point. But I don't, in, in order to get past that point of being nervous, there's no substitute for actually doing it. And I know a lot of the, you know, a lot of the um, clubs and facilities will have <clears throat> the younger um, professionals work with um you know, work in, within a clinic atmosphere, so maybe that they have somebody who's working with them, right? So yeah. you might have a, um, you know, the head professional or the director of instruction working with a couple of apprentices, so that the message is 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 very clear and you're able to observe and teach at the same time. Yeah, I think 
the place that I learned, obviously I've watched and taken lessons from you a lot, so I've learned there, but one of the other places I probably learned a lot was at Brayburn with Sean McTernan. He gave ladies clinics every week, I think twice a, twice a week, and I would help him out with some of them, and I got to teach, but I also got to hear his spiel at the beginning, which was really helpful. The way that he says things probably makes more sense than I was saying them at the beginning of my career. <laughs> Sean is a very good instructor, um, and I think one of the things that is really important and what makes a good instructor a great instructor is their ability to communicate. Um, you know, and having worked with Sean, um, he is a very good communicator in how he shares the message, and I think that that's, that's really important um, in being, to being an effective teacher. Yeah, I, I wonder too, because one of the ways that the education is different between when I did it and you did it is there's three paths now um so you can go I did golf operations but you can also do teaching and coaching or executive management and the management one is more for people that want to be GMs obviously teaching and coaching is for coaches and uh golf operations is kind of a mix of all three so the teaching and coaching we only did two days out of the five so I wonder if the teaching and coaching seminars, which I obviously never got to see, um, do a better job of preparing you because you're focusing on it all five days. But like you said, there's no substitute for just getting out there and doing it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, you're, I know that, you know, the PJ has, has have these specialized paths to try to help people become, for lack of a better word, more employable, right? So you're, you have a specialization in whether it's, you know, teaching and coaching or golf operations or management, um, trying to expand the potential career paths for their, for their members um, um, to make it uh, easier for them to find work. And that's really, as an association, an important part of it. I mean, we did not have that when I was going through the program. I mean, everybody's program was structured the same, but on the back end of it, I mean, I, you have the ability to become certified in certain disciplines and you can also get your master professional status as well by, by doing extra work, you know, and, and I, I'm certified in general management and golf operations, um, you know, and you can do it in teaching and coaching as well. So there's still an opportunity once you become a class A to, um, to get more education and uh, and learn more about a specific discipline, but I would 100% agree in saying that there's no substitute for experience with your, you know, with doing it with boots on the ground. Yeah. Do you plan on becoming a master professional? Um, I actually started the process and then I stopped and I have thought about going back in. Right now I'm very busy with other projects and I don't think that the timing is right right now. Um, but um, it is certainly something that I have um, have thought about doing, and you know, um, when when I did it, as long, you, as long as you were certified in two disciplines, which I am, you had the ability to register for the master professional uh, program. It's a very elite group of people. There's only a few hundred, I think, in the country. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but last time I looked, it was less than a thousand. I want to say it's like maybe six or seven hundred people that are that are master professionals, um, and it's very very in depth. Um, you know, it's almost, I think the way that it was described to me was that getting your class A membership is like getting your bachelor's degree, getting certified is getting your master's and becoming a master professional is like getting your PhD. So, <laughs> gotcha. So moving into like employment, 
um, in the PGA and the golf industry in general. Um, I know I am one of the 5% of females in the association, which I don't know, I think there's 29,000-ish professionals, so I'm really bad at math, but it's not a lot. I, th I think there's like 40 females in the New England section. Do you know how many people there are in the New England section total? There's, uh, I think it's just shy of 1,100. Last time I looked at um, one of the membership reports, um, we generally run somewhere between 1,000 to 1,100. So there's like 48 of us out of 1,100 females. Right. Um, what do you think the main reason is for there being such a lack of females? Because I know there's a huge demand for female professionals. So, you know, look, I mean, the, the, I, think, I think people tend to migrate into um, associations. They tend to migrate into groups. Um, and tend to align themselves and be part of um, be part of things, groups or whatever that they can relate to. And <clears throat> as a female, um, and you you go to a PGA meeting, you go to the, a section meeting, a chapter meeting, or a national meeting, and you walk in. You're immediately, as a female, going to say, "Wow, this room doesn't look anything like me. It's not representative of who I am." Because, you know, you've got, um, you know, you, you, if you've got 100 or 200 people at a, at a section meeting, um, you're lucky to probably have three or four or five, you know, females in the group. So I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's not, there's not an easy answer. It's going to take time. If we get to a point where that 5% becomes 10 and the 10% becomes 20 and there's more women that are, you know, in the PGA, whether they're apprentices or become class A's, then I think that, you know, it will begin to snowball and there'll be a domino effect where, you know, the women and females who play the game of golf, who enjoy golf, that potentially want to make a career out of it, can say, hey, I can do this because there's other people there that look like me um, that I can relate to. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a relatability factor that hopefully over time will will change. It's not going to happen tomorrow or next year, but um, the PGA has done um, has done work over the last few years identifying this as an issue. They you know we know that it's a problem, and trying to find ways to encourage um, uh, women and minorities, for that matter, to um, to enter into into the game of golf and enter into golf as a career. And I think one of the biggest things that I've thought about as I'm approaching 25 um, <laughs> and thinking about like settling down with my boyfriend eventually getting married having kids I saw you when I was growing up work like absurd hours and you were lucky that mom was there to be in the shop with you and we could all work there with you but like if I want to have kids and a family and my husband is also going to have a full-time job there's like Right now, I don't see any way for me to be a head golf professional. Like the work-life balance is just not there. Well, I think the work-life balance for all professionals in the business right now is an issue, right? I mean, look, COVID has driven a demand uh, into the game of golf that we haven't seen in forever. I mean, I guess probably the last time was the Tiger effect back in the late 90s into the early 2000s when he first came out on tour. Um, and now COVID in the last couple of years has driven um, driven rounds up at facilities in the 30% range. It seems to be a common number. So, 
you combine that with the fact that there are less um, younger people like yourself, apprentices and assistants, who are entering the business. Um, and so the demand is higher, the amount of staffing that's available, and those that are entering, um, uh, the, uh, entering into golf as a career is gone down. And it's created a huge strain on the industry, and, um, and it's a problem, and it's something that we are talking about. As far as being able to have a work-life balance in managing family life versus career, I do think that the industry as a whole is starting to recognize the fact that they have to allow um, their staff to have more freedom to live their lives outside of the golf business. So, yeah, I mean, you're, when I was, you know, when I was uh, a head pro, I mean, it was, you know, we all worked at least six days, sometimes seven. There were certainly stretches of time where we would go 30 or 40 or 50 days without a day off, generally in the spring when things were kicking off because you don't have a lot of staff. You're waiting for the kids to come back from school in order to have the outside staff. And if they're not there yet, then you have to do it, right? So, um, but I do think that the expectations um, at the facilities are starting to become realigned with what is necessary in order to be able to retain people into the industry because um, it's just, you, you know, you work people to the bone and they're going to find other things to do. And I think COVID, myself included, um, you know, made us all kind of look and say, hey, what's really important? Yeah. And, um, and so you have this revelation of like, you know, how, how, much, how much do I really want to work and how much do I need to work? But I do think that, you know, there will always be a need for females in the game, especially if you can teach the game. Um, there's that relatability factor where I think, you know, women, there's definitely a, you know, a lot of women would prefer to take lessons from another female. And I think it's really important to have, um, female PJ professionals to be mentors and be, um, somebody that young girls can look up to, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and say, look, I can do this, um, because they look at somebody like yourself who has made a career in, in golf, and, uh, and it inspires them to do the same. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's teaching is one thing where you have a, maybe a little bit more control over your own schedule, um, and so that you can, you know, you can balance that. But, yeah, I mean, if you're raising a couple of kids and working weekends and 10 to 12 hours a day, that's, um, that's hard. Yeah, I think, well, the first job I took at Braeburn was five days a week, sometimes 40, sometimes 50 hours, but it never really got much over that because we had a pretty big size staff. And now the job that I work is also five days a week, except, you know, probably the invitational work six days. But I think if I had to work six days a week, every single week, I probably would not be in the golf industry because it just, I don't know, I watched you do it for a while and it just doesn't, doesn't uh, appeal to me at all. Well, you get used to it. I think that, and then you know, you do have an off season here in the Northeast, so that helped. You, you had, you did have some downtime, but now with you know, I mean, the the seasons are changing. the The falls are getting longer. The springs are starting sooner, and so that downtime is becoming a little bit less. Um, and so you know, it, it's the amount of time off during the during the winter is I think is is diminishing um, everywhere. You well, know. and you have. Uh, assistants that if they work in the northeast or anywhere up north during the summer they have they don't get paid enough 
to survive off that for the whole year. So they have to go down south or Arizona, Florida, whatever, to work the winter. So there really is no downtime for them. Correct. They're doing the six and six. You know, and, and the goal, obviously, if somebody's doing you know, a north-south uh, deal where they're working 12 months a year, um, you're hoping that that fast tracks them through the, through the program. They're getting their, they're getting their credits. They're getting their class A with the hopes of, um, you know, of getting their, their, their head pro job, um, where they will, they can settle down and, and, and raise a family. You know, I mean, that's one of the big things is that, you know, it was, there was a time where if you wanted to get a good head pro job, you had to be willing to move. Right. And if you had a family already, and if you were already married and had kids and you were kind of established in an area, then moving, maybe not, be, you know, be something that you wanted to do and that kind of pigeonholed you. But I'll tell you, it's, it's, um, there's no shortage of work right now. There's no shortage of jobs. Somebody who wants to enter this business and make this a career because they love the game and they enjoy being around people who also are like-minded and loving the game of golf. Um, I don't see there being any issues finding work for the, for the foreseeable yeah. future because there is a shortage uh, in the industry. Especially if you're female. Especially if you're female. <laughs> so moving into uh, something that you kind of recently just got into, the Golf Live app. Um, it just launched in the App Store, what, in March, April? It was the middle yeah, of March. Yeah, uh, March was the uh, March 1st. I believe it was March 1st was the official launch date. Um, you know, Golf Live was active in the App Store prior to that, but that was kind of the when the promotional um, side of things started happening in March. Um, it's certainly been an interesting ride. I'd never thought at this point in my career I'd be involved in technology. Yeah, um, me neither. But, uh, yeah, as, as I figured, you, you, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually helping people with their settings on their on their Apple devices now, and um, I can actually navigate through all of that, um, and I've learned all that. But um, no, it's but just, you started with it in what 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's so um, you know I've had conversations. So Keith Scioli is the founder of the of, of Golf Live, and this was kind of his vision. Um, he's worked with a team of developers to create. Um, the app and the functions in the app, which are really cool. Um, and I've been talking to him for, for a couple of years now, but I really got involved at the end of last year, at the end of 2021, because I was very much intrigued and believed in what the app could do for, for golf and for coaches. And um, the technology is unique. Um, there are things within the app uh, technology where you're able to do live replay videos and, and share videos while you're on the call in real time with the players that you're you're instructing um, and I think that this is um, it's going to change the, the 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 demographics and the geography so we're kind of myopic in our thinking in that people have to come to us in a certain region to get help and this kind of breaks down that barrier right so I mean I've worked obviously having students that are in Florida during the winter and working with snowbirds um, you're able to supplement the one-on-one -on -one sessions that you're able to do in person um, on the app. The first, when we launched, the first lesson that I gave was to a student that was actually playing a round of golf in New Mexico, um, you know, which was kind of mind-blowing to me. And so, you know, there's, there's your, the, the idea is to create an environment where somebody can get a lesson on demand anytime that they want. They don't have to wait a week or two weeks or even a month to go and see a coach. If they need help now, they can request it. Um, and it also allows coaches to supplement their existing business with their clients um, and be able to connect 
um, virtually, which during COVID was something that we were all forced into doing whether we wanted to or not. For many people, that was something that was brand new, right? Giving lessons over Zoom, um, which, you know, we had to do it because we weren't able to be in person. Everything was closed. And so this kind of takes it to the next level where you have functions that we as coaches are used to having within the platforms that we have. We have drawing tools and editing tools. Um, but the difference between this and any of the other platforms that are out there is we have the ability to record students um, uh, swinging a golf club wherever they are and, and edit those videos and, um, and share them with them while we're on the call. It's not a one-way street where we're sharing pre, uh, pre-recorded videos. That's the big difference. Yeah, I think, well, my first lesson that I gave, which was actually a, a two-for-one because you gave it with me, <laughs> was uh, for a guy that was down in Texas on a lake yeah. and he was had a mat set up on a dock and he was hitting balls into the water. Into the lake, yeah. Um, yep. Probably not great for the lake but um <laughs> it was pretty cool i mean it was like a sunday night around 8 p.m here we just ate dinner yeah. and gave a lesson so i made a quick buck which was cool from the coach side but also cool from the student side because he's just he probably does that every weekend go hit a few balls after dinner and now he can get help yeah on I, demand i think it's going to take a little bit of time for both players and coaches to adapt to the to the thinking to the mindset change that this is that this is bringing, but um, because we've done things so long for one way, but that's that's how change occurs, right? You have to disrupt things, and this is disruptive to to how we do it now. But like, I mean, I just I just you know I just gave a lesson on Saturday to a student um, who was down the Cape. I mean, he was at a driving range down in Barnstable, and um, you know, set up his phone on the driving range, and we connected through the app and was able to give him a lesson and, you know, helped him with his over-the-top move and changed his path, and so we're going to follow up again. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to break down the barriers of time and geography, right? So it can happen whenever, right? It's like it's the, the that's, that's really the thing. It's just, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday at the driving range. Yeah. You've broken down that barrier. And so it expands the ability of to when you can teach and who you can teach. And so, you know, from my perspective, for selfish reasons and how I hope, how I hope that this helps golf professionals is to increase their income while also improving their work-life balance. Yeah. I'd be interested to see, too, um, if the PGA education ever you know, adapts to virtual instruction because it's kind of like a different animal. Giving a lesson via something like FaceTime, um, that would be interesting to see. Well, there is, I mean, there are certain things I think that, you know, as an experienced coach, I think there are certain things that you can see. Um, there, It is different teaching online, and I think that, you know, we're, we're here to help. I mean, one of my responsibilities is to help coaches um, learn how to use the app learn how to be comfortable on the app and what you're going to see, you know, through a camera lens from 1500 miles away is different than what you're going to see in person. And I think one of the biggest things for me that was weird giving a lesson was not being able to physically like touch and move the student. Cause I like to, I don't know, it's just weird for me to not work with my hands. Um, so there's a little bit of like adapting to that, having to talk them through everything. It's, it's definitely different. And to say that you can do virtually what you can do in person, right? It's, it's, 
you know, everybody has their own style, and I think that those that are really good at communicating, um, you can still get the message across, you know, virtually through through the app. Um, it's not to replace in-person lessons 100% of the time by any stretch of the imagination. I see this really as two things. One, it's supplemental to be able to help your existing uh, client base in between in-person sessions and also it provides um, an avenue for those who do not have a coach who may not have access um, to an instructor because they're either in a remote area or they're new golfers and they don't know who to go to for help be able to get the help that they want. So those are the two things that I think that this kind of solves. Golf Live you know, addresses those issues and provides um, a platform um, for those people to connect. Alrighty, so to wrap up, I have a couple questions for you that I didn't tell you about. Um, the Masters just ended yesterday. Yep. It's the day after Masters Sunday. Um, and I was actually listening to another podcast, um, Pages, Paige Spiranak. I think that's how you last, yep. say your last name. She was discussing how the Masters is everything she loves and hates about the game of golf. Because it's embodies all of the traditions of of golf no cell phones you can't even run like if you run you get kicked out like it's just very it's very prim and proper it's everything that golf used to be um and they just started letting women and people of color become members not too long ago like it was a white man's club until recently but people love it like masters the day before the masters start it's like the hype around it is insane. People love it. Master Sunday is like religion to golfers. Do you love it or do you hate it? No, I don't hate it. I, I, so if you, I understand. There's no right answer. No, I, no, I understand. No, I understand. Because I don't have an answer for myself either. No, I understand there's no right or wrong answer. And I certainly understand what Paige is conveying, but um, if you look at it solely as a golf tournament, right? So take the other aspects that she may be mentioning out of the equation and you look at it solely as a golf tournament and to watch a competitive round. So, I mean, what makes, what makes a golf tournament intriguing? What makes people want to watch? Well, you know, they always say that the back, the, the masters doesn't really start until the back nine on Sunday because there's so much that can happen, you know, um, on those holes. I mean, if, for those that have, if you've been fortunate enough to be there, you understand how difficult, you know, 11 and, you know, as we saw yesterday, 12, you know, and, you know, 13 and 15 provide birdie opportunities, um, you know, and then 18 is, is ridiculously hard. I mean, you can't appreciate how far back in the shoot that those guys are on TV and the elevation changes. So what makes the golf tournament? The Masters, I think it's there can be so many swings in the scoring um, in a nine-hole stretch that somebody who might be three, four, or five shots back when they make the turn on the final day still has a chance to win. Um, and, um, you know, as far as the traditions, I think the one thing about the Masters is that they know who they are. Yeah. There's no question in the brand in the identity of the event. They're not trying to be the Waste Management Open, you know, in number 16. That is not who they are. You know, obviously 16 at 
the waste management is it's an it's a event and people obviously love that but the people at Augusta National have no desire to go down that road because they don't need to and anybody who's been fortunate enough to be on the property at Augusta understands that it is the best run golf tournament in the world the way that they organize things and handle things it's just it's just a special place now as far as the other things that she's talking about with you know allowing you know females into the club and what Augusta National has stood for. Like everything else, it takes time to change, but they are evolving and they are changing. Um, and there is new leadership at the club that are identifying that stuff. And, it, and over time, I think that you will, you, will see that, you will see that continue to evolve and change just like a lot of things have, you know, going back 30, 40, 50, 60 years in this country. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it and I love it too. I'll, it's probably the only golf tournament that I actually watched like start to finish. And I think they are doing some things for, like they do drive, chip, and putt. And they yeah. just started the, the ANWA. ANWA, yeah. Um, no. But I, I just thought it was an interesting debate that she brought up. I, I, think that, I think that as stewards of the game, right, when you host quite arguably the most popular golf tournament in the world, you have a responsibility to the game and a society to do things like the drive, chip, and putt, and the ANWA. Um, you have the ability to influence more than just those four days in April, right? And so I think that they now are realizing that they have a responsibility um, to the game to do those things, and they are. Yeah. I think the next step is getting ANWA to be more than just one day. All right, last question. What is one thing could be a training aid, a anything that you use to either play or teach better currently. What's like your favorite thing? Wow. You didn't give me that one in advance. Yeah, that's why. Um, <laughs> so it's hard to say that, you know, that I have a favorite or one thing that I use all the time. I think there's probably two things that I would say that are important when it comes to teaching people how to impact the golf ball. And, you know, and it's not anything that's new, but I use an impact bag quite frequently to try to encourage people how to properly impact a golf ball because it does work. Um, and the impact bag can be used more for than just impact. It can also be something that can help with path. And I think one of the things that I invested in several years ago that I still use and I use in the majority of my lessons to this day is, um, is a force plate, right? Is body track, right? And seeing pressure against the ground and understanding, having the, having the student understand where their points of pressure are against the ground um, at different points during the swing is extremely important because a lot of golfers, both new and experienced golfers, tend to hang back on their rear foot and do not create a good impact position and wonder why they either chunk it or skull it. You know, I think that if, uh, I think that anything that you can do to help a student understand how the golf club works and create a proper impact position. And, and allow them to get the ball in the air and understand how spin is created is really, revel, it's a revelation to them when they learn that. And then from there, whether they're hitting a wedge or a five iron, you can learn how to do that. So I think that, you know, those are two things that I use a lot. 
but there isn't there isn't one one thing. I guess another thing that I use a lot of is I do use a, a lot of I, I I'm always looking for clubs right to throw form grips on to teach people how to yeah. hold the club right. So because putting your hands on the club and gripping it properly is how you control the face. If you have a poor grip, you're probably going to have a poor face position at impact, and the ball's going to go left or right. Yeah, I mean those. It's I guess there's not any one. I you know I, I know it's a long-winded answer. So I asked for one. I got three. So in yeah, well, in increasing price, if you if you're looking for something, form well, grips well, then well, impact well, bag. Well, yeah, I mean a form grips a you know it's a ten dollar item. The impact bag's probably a forty or fifty dollar item. Um, you know the force plates are, are are expensive, but you know that's something that we as a coach you make an investment because you want to help the student. But I guess here's what I would say to the answer to your question is that the reason why I can't identify just one is because every student is different. Yeah. So when I'm working with somebody, you know, I might pull something out of my training bag that is going to help them, but I might not use it for the next two students, right? So, but I think grip and, you know, impact position are two things that are vitally important to playing good golf. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm sure you'll be on in the future. All right. Well, hopefully. If I let you. <laughs>